Well, good morning, church. Just going to take your Bibles out with me and turn to the book of Genesis. If you've been following along, we've been looking at uh, Abraham's life in chapters 12 through 25. Um, after looking at creation and the fall of man in 1 through 11, then you have Abraham and Isaac in 12 through 25. Then we have Jacob in 26 through 36. And then starting in chapter 37, we kind of turn our focus to look at the life of Joseph, and that will carry us all the way to the end of the book of Genesis. So if you're looking at the black Bible in the chair that's in front of you, chapter 37 should be found on page 31, and I encourage you to keep your Bible open and follow along as we read God's word together. Everyone there? All right. Many of you have probably heard of a, a woman named Johnny Erickson Tata. She was actually born in Baltimore, Maryland. She had a, an active life. Her, her father was an Olympic wrestler. She had a, she, her whole family were kind of athletes, and, and she had a very bright future ahead of her. But as a 17-year-old high school graduate, she went for a swim with her sister and dove into the Chesapeake Bay, not realizing how shallow the water was. And when she went into the water, she snapped her neck. And it left her paralyzed for the rest of her life from the shoulders down. As a young Christian woman whose dreams were shattered in an instant, she was wrestling and she spoke to one of her friends at one point saying, you know, I always thought that God was good. But here I sit as a quadriplegic in a wheelchair for the rest of my life. And in this moment, I feel more like God's enemy than his child. She went on to say, didn't God want to stop my accident? Wasn't God, was God even there when I broke my neck? I think tragic accidents like that for a Christian are a reminder for us that being a Christian doesn't mean that we are immune from tragedy. In our own church family, there are testimonies sitting in this room of people who have suffered for years from debilitating illness. There are testimonies of people who have suffered the loss of a job, who've gone through depression, who are walking through an agonizing divorce. Some have been hated for being a Christian, disowned by their family. Others, others here have been robbed at gunpoint, assaulted. Others here are grieving the death of a parent, a spouse, or some other loved one, a child. And in tragedy such as this, tragedy can leave us asking, where is God? Doesn't he see? Doesn't he care? And, and, and these, this question is, is not just a 21st century question. As God's people in the Old Testament faced tragedy, one psalmist asked, How long, O Lord? How long? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? The psalmist says that. Fast forward to the New Testament. Jesus and his disciples are making their way across the sea one night and a windstorm arises out of nowhere and the, and the windstorm is so violent that the boat takes on water and is about to sink. And so when Jesus' disciples look for Jesus for help, where do they find him? Asleep. 
on a cushion in the back of the boat. Once they kind of wake Jesus up from his sleep, they ask him, teacher, don't you care that we're going to die? I wonder if you've asked questions like the disciples asked, or like the psalmist asked, or like Johnny Erickson Tata asked. I wonder if you've ever asked God, where are you? God, don't you care? What do we do in moments of darkness like that? How can we trust God when we're in the pit and God seems nowhere to be found? Well, to answer that question, we turn our attention to God's word in Genesis chapter 37. And we're going to pick it up this morning in verse 2, where we left off last week. So look with me at God's word. This is the best part of the sermon. Look at verse 2. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? And so they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, to the, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, ah, here comes the dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then 
We will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what becomes of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. And then Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood, and they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned his son for many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. This is a well-known story from Genesis to many of us. And it's been a beloved story, uh, often referred to by many as a literary masterpiece. It's why they write books about Joseph, they they make musicals about Joseph because it's such a well-known and beloved story. The story of a guy who's mistreated, he's forgotten, he's the underdog. In the end, he rises to the top in the end. And the story is a masterpiece. But it's actually not about Joseph. Joseph is the main human character, sure. But this is actually a story about God. Now, you might hear that and say, well, hold on, Zach. God is not mentioned once in Genesis 37. And you'd be right. And a a skeptic might read chapter 37 and say, oh, see, God isn't there when you need him. If God cared, he'd stop sinful men from carrying out such terrible plans. And it's true. God's name is not mentioned once in chapter 37. But make no mistake, God is present in every detail of chapter 37. God is the one who's steering the ship so that his purposes are fulfilled. Now, we know God's purposes are being fulfilled because years before God, when he made his covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, God told Abraham in Genesis 15 verse 13, 
Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. What place is he talking about? Egypt. And so this 400-year Egyptian detour was not an accident. That Joseph ends up in Egypt in the end is not an accident. It was part of God's sovereign plan. If God's sovereignty is his power and his authority or his rule over all things, God's providence is a subset of his sovereignty. God's providence is his sovereignty for your good as a child of God. So Joseph, well, he can't see God's providence in this story. He's in the story. So he can't see it. But in the end of Genesis, he'll see it. And he'll tell his brothers in Genesis 50, verse 20, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. You hear the definition of providence? It's his rule for your good. That points to the big idea of chapter 37. So if you're wondering what the big idea is, here it is. When we're in the pits and God seems distant, Trust God, because he rules over every detail of life. When we're in the pits and God seems distant, trust God, because he rules over every detail of life. Chapter 37 breaks into two main sections, so we'll kind of break it up that way for the the two points of the sermon. Uh, and, and, and these two points of the text, these two parts of the text will show different aspects of this big idea. So if you're taking notes, point number one is this. God's providence in dysfunctional families. God's providence in dysfunctional families. And we're going to see that in verses 2 through 11 of the text. In verses 2 through 11, we're introduced to the main characters of chapter 37. Jacob the father, Joseph, and his brothers. So at 17 years old, Joseph is presented as a young boy compared to his older brothers. So when Joseph brought a bad report of his older brothers to their father, you immediately feel the tension in the story. They're like, oh, conflict's about to happen, right? I mean, kids, you get this, right? If you have a younger brother or sister and your younger brother or sister runs to dad and gives a bad report about you to to dad, how do you feel? Do you love your brother or sister who does that? you, You likely feel angry. You feel annoyed. You're like, that little brat, right? And that's that's what we see. And on top of the bad report that Joseph gives of his brothers, Jacob makes it clear to everyone who his favorite son is. Well, how do we know that? Because he makes a robe of many colors and gives it to Joseph. And so this robe of many colors is not only a symbol of his favoritism of Joseph, it's also a sign of the authority that he is entrusting to Joseph. It seems that Joseph, after he brings this bad report about his brothers to, to dad, it seems that dad then turns around and promotes him as the supervisor of his older brothers. Well, how do his brothers feel when little Joseph shows up with his coat of many colors signifying his, I'm dad's favorite and now I'm your supervisor? How do they feel? Verse 4, 
When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Joseph walks into the room, can't say a nice thing to him, could not speak peacefully to him. Past hurts, favoritism, the bad report, all these details look like kindling for a fire about to be lit, and, 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 and the gasoline is about to be poured on this kindling uh, with what happens next. In verses 5 through 7, Joseph then comes to his brothers who are already ticked off at him, and he tells them two dreams. In verses 5 through 7, we, we see the first dream about this sheaf, which is like a, a bundle of grain during harvest. And he tells them, you know, my grain bundle stands upright, no problem so far. But then he says, and behold, your sheaves gathered around my sheaf and bowed down to my sheaf. You don't need a PhD in dream interpretation to get the point of the dream. And they get it. Joseph certainly understands what the dream implied about his future, and so did the brothers. And that's made clear by their reaction in verse 8. <laughs> Are you indeed to reign over us? Or your older brothers? Are you indeed to rule over us? Are you going to reign over us? And so they hated him even more. So you see this hatred escalating in the text. Now we as the reader know that Joseph's dreams came from God because they will be fulfilled at the end of the book of Genesis. So these dreams are actually God's revelation. They are God's word to Joseph about his future plans. In fact, in Genesis 42 verse 6, we will see his brothers come to Joseph in Egypt and they will actually bow down to him as the second command of Egypt. So it comes true. But knowing the tension that already exists between him and his brothers, when I read him telling his brothers about his dream, I'm wondering why he tells them the dream in the first place. He kind of comes across like this pompous little brat. Or at best, he's just naive, a little foolish. He's a teenager, we're told, and as a teenager, he needs the wisdom of Proverbs. And listen, every teenager in this room, I would encourage you to read the book of Proverbs over and over and over. It is written particularly for you. There's, a, there's 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs. If you read a chapter a day, you can read through the whole book of Proverbs in a month. Make that a regular habit as a teenager. It's God's wisdom for everybody, but it's in particular for the young people in this church, in particular the teenagers who are here. Two Proverbs come to mind that I wish Joseph would have remembered. First one is Proverbs 18, verse 6. It says, a fool's lips walk into a fight, and his mouth invites a beating. We're going to see that in just a little bit. Second proverb I wish he would have remembered. Proverbs 17, verse 28. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is, in, he is deemed intelligent. I love that proverb because I, I use it a lot. I'm in a conversation. Of, if I just keep my mouth shut, I might look wise, right? You kind of look at what happens to Joseph. You're like, I wish he would have kept his mouth shut, but he doesn't. And so part of what we're meant to see is that before, before Joseph becomes the wise, godly, 
leader that we'll see at the end of the book of Genesis, he's got some growing up to do. And what God will take him through, God will use to shape and grow Joseph in the maturity that he needs to be the leader that he'll use in Egypt. But that's for later on. Well, after this first dream of the sheaves, God gives Joseph a second dream. And this time, it's not the sheaves, it's the, the sun, it's the moon, it's the 11 stars. And how many brothers does he have? 11. Okay, so that's clear. 11 stars bowing down to him in verse 9. So again, rather than keeping it to himself, being wise here, Joseph recounts the dream again to his brothers. And, and the increasing hatred of his brothers morphs into jealousy. Look at verse 11. His brothers were jealous of him, right? Envy, envy and jealousy are close cousins. Envy <clears throat> desires what belongs to others. Jealousy desires to protect what we assume is ours. So envy wants what belongs to others. Jealousy desires to protect what we assume is ours. Sinful jealousy is like hatred on steroids, right? And you notice, it, you notice it at the end of verse four. They hated him and they could not speak peacefully to him. It's not that they struggled to be nice to Joseph. It's not that they wanted, but you know, they had a hard time. The text says that they could not speak peacefully to him. They, jealousy, sinful jealousy puts hatred in the driver's seat. They were slaves of hatred because of this jealousy that they had of their brother. Well, what were they jealous of? Well, as older brothers, they had a position of authority over their younger brother. So Jacob's favoritism of the youngest son, Joseph, Jacob making his youngest son their supervisor was bad enough, right? This robe of many colors just, frustrated their brothers. But when Joseph comes and says, not only is dad saying this, but actually God's given me two dreams that, to suggest that God himself is endorsing me that I'm gonna be your ruler one day, well, that just that, that pushes them over the edge, right? And, and, and listen, admittedly, having a little brother say that to their sibling, you're gonna bow down to me one day. That's a hard pill to swallow. I'm the younger brother. I imagine if I said that to my sister when I was a kid, I might get punched in the face, right? So it's a hard pill to swallow. But the dream, listen, the dream was God's word. The dream was God's revelation to Joseph. I think part of the reason that his brothers were not able to recognize Joseph's dream as God's word was not because they were stupid. It's not because they were dumb. It's not because they lacked in, in, intelligence. The reason that they could not recognize God, these dreams as God's word was because of jealousy. Jealousy made them deaf to the voice of God. You fast forward to the New Testament, it's the same reason that the religious leaders killed Jesus out of envy. He was a threat to their position. God himself, God the Father, certified that Jesus was the Son of God through a number of miracles, including raising Lazarus from the dead after he'd been in the tomb for four days. You'd think after you saw Jesus raise a four-day-old dead person from the tomb that you'd believe. But they didn't. They couldn't. 
They were deaf to the voice of God because Jesus was a threat to them losing the position that they had as religious leaders. Now, some of you look at the sermon title and you're like, why did he call this the fruit of demonic wisdom? That's on our, that's on our billboard out front that people driving by. Well, it comes from, it comes from James 3, right? James 3, thir- James 3, 14 through 16 says this. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic wisdom. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. The fruit of demonic wisdom that comes from Satan is disorder, division, and conflict, every vile practice. So look at yourself, friends, look at yourself in the mirror of James 3. Are your relationships marked by conflict and disorder? Does that typify your relationships? Or do you see jealousy or selfish ambition, kind of a canvassing of votes, look at me, I want you to notice me, in your, that's, is, is that selfish ambition or jealousy motivating you in your relationships, whether online or in person? Sinful jealousy stems from demonic wisdom, and James uses that language because Satan, that, that's the wisdom that Satan used with Eve in the Garden of Eden. He, he got Eve to look at the, the fruit that God had forbidden her from eating and made it look wise. Huh. If I eat the fruit that God said not to eat, that's going to make me wise. That's going to bring me life. Sinful jealousy is demonic wisdom because it, it, put, it, it, it makes putting ourselves first seem right and wise even if we have to run over those who are in the way to get what we want. Friends, if there is sinful jealousy or selfish ambition in your hearts, don't deceive yourself. Look in the mirror, confess it to God, bring it into the light, and with the help of his spirit, put it to death. So when we get to the end of verse 11, you see this escalating hatred from the brothers until it spills over into this jealousy. And we're left wondering, okay, is this, is there envy, is there jealousy going to derail God's plan for, Jake, for Joseph? Is this, is this going to ruin God's plan for Joseph? Point number two, God's providence in shattered dreams. God's providence in shattered dreams. And we're going to see this in verses 12 through 36 of our text. We're told in this section that Joseph's brothers were out shepherding their flocks near Shechem. And if you remember in chapter 34, Shechem is where, not too long ago, uh, Joseph's brothers Simeon and Levi killed every single male in their blind rage. So that's where they're, that's where they're watching their sheep. We also know that Joseph's brothers hated him, right? And yet, despite their hatred of Joseph, Jacob sends Joseph. Hey, Joseph, why don't you go out and check on your brothers who hate you and bring back another report. I know you brought a bad report last time. That's why they hate you, but do it again. And he sends him out, right? So if you're Joseph, you're thinking, really, Dad? 
but he obeys. He does what his dad asks him to. Initially, Joseph can't find his brothers. They're not in Shechem because they moved on. But instead of returning to the safety of his home, he just happens to bump into this guy who's walking around, and he happens to have heard where these shepherds went. Oh, they're in Dothan. So then he keeps going. He goes to Dothan, which is about 14 miles further north, which means that he's 14 miles further away from the safety of home, 14 miles away, further away from his father's protective umbrella. Now, in just a little bit, in verses 12 through 36, the bottom is going to drop out for Joseph. But as one writer notes, the bottom will not drop out of God's net of care. It's interesting. If you fast forward to 2 Kings 6, the prophet Elisha will find himself in the same city of Dothan. And in the city of Dothan, he's gonna, the, the, the prophet's going to be surrounded by a Syrian army who is out to kill him. And yet in that text, in 2 Kings 6, God sends his angels in chariots of fire to protect and to rescue the prophet from the Syrian army. That's amazing, right? So when you compare God's protection and rescue of Elisha in Dothan with what he does with Joseph in Dothan, it might seem like Joseph was abandoned by God in Dothan. But friends, God is just as present with Joseph in Dothan as he was with Elisha. Just can't see it. Jesus, in the New Testament, Jesus once helped Peter pay his taxes by telling him to go fishing. Go out and put, your, put, the, put the fishing pole in the water. You're going to bring up a fish. And, he command, and Jesus commands this fish by his sovereignty to scoop up a coin, and he's going to pay his taxes with that coin. Now, if you read that text and you're struggling to pay your taxes and you go out fishing this afternoon and the fish that you catch this afternoon does not have a coin in its mouth, that does not mean that God is absent. It does not mean that God doesn't care about you. It just just might show that God doesn't always provide in the same way or as we'd expected. Anyways, when we come to verse 18, verse 18 says that they saw Joseph coming from afar. How do they know it's Joseph? He's got that colorful, you know, that that much-loathed coat of many colors. It makes him stick out like a sore thumb. Verse 19, they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him. Throw him in one of these pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what becomes of his dreams. They had this plan to kill their brother, but Reuben, the firstborn, and I don't know, we're not told why he wants this, but perhaps you know, he's probably in hot water because he slept with his father's concubine. He's already in hot water. So he, he, perhaps because of that, wants to save his younger brother, and he is the firstborn. So he, he convinces his brother, let's not kill him. Let's just throw him in one of these pits. And, that, and so they agree to that. And so as soon as Joseph arrives, imagine this scene. Joseph arrives probably with food for his brothers to eat that's sent from his dad, they grab him, nine brothers, and they claw at him and rip off his robe of many colors. And they dump him in a pit. It was a, it was a water cistern that was used to collect water in the dry season. We're told that there was no water in there, but it's a cistern that's deep enough that he can't climb out on his own. And there Joseph sits, the bottom of this pit, stripped naked, 
likely bruised and bleeding, wondering how his brothers could have treated him like this. He was literally in the pits. Well, did his brothers feel remorseful about this? Not at all. After tossing Joseph in the pit, look at verse 25. They sat down to eat. Have a little dinner. The text doesn't record Joseph saying anything now, but in, later on in Genesis 42, verse 21, the brothers are going to recall that in that moment, when they put him in the pit and they're eating dinner, they say in, in 42, 21, we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. So that's what's going on in this scene. They're sitting there cracking jokes, eating some falafels and hummus, and Joseph is weeping, crying out from the bottom of this pit, help me, Simeon, Judah, Reuben, somebody, why are you doing this? And they just go on eating dinner. Just then we're told the Midianite traders are passing by. And when they see the traders passing by, the brothers have an idea. Listen, rather than just letting him die in this pit, let's make a little money off this deal. Let's sell him into slavery and make some money. So they, they agree to that plan. They, they, they jerk Joseph out of the pit and they sell him for 20 shekels of silver. Kind of like Jesus was sold, betrayed by Judas for 30 shekels of silver. Soon his feet are in shackles. They put an iron collar around his neck. And Joseph begins the long trek from Dothan to Egypt. Where soon he'd be standing on a slave block, humiliated, naked, and sold as a slave. God had given him two dreams to tell him about his future. Now those dreams seem to be shattered. Where was God in this? Why didn't God stop my brothers? Does he even care? Well, it's not just Joseph's dreams that are shattered. As soon as Joseph's out of the picture, his brothers make a plan. What are we going to tell our dad? Verse 31, we're told they took Joseph's robe, they slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. So they're going to deceive their dad with the blood of a goat. And the brothers' deceit makes this text drip with irony because it was years before that Jacob had deceived his elderly father, Isaac, when he slaughtered a goat, put the skins of the goat on his arm to make him appear like Esau. Like father, like son. Well, when Jacob sees the coat covered in blood, he is sure that his son is dead. In verse 34, it says, Jacob, Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. Jacob's dreams were also shattered when he was led to believe that his son 
had died. Perhaps Jacob, who refuses to be comforted, is sitting there thinking, where is God in this? Why didn't God stop this animal from devouring my beloved son? Does God even care? Theologically, as you read through this text, there is a a careful interplay between the sovereignty of God and human responsibility. What's clear to the reader in the words, in the events, is what man is responsible for. So Jacob chose to show favoritism to Joseph. Joseph chose to tell his brothers about his two dreams. His brothers chose to strip Joseph of his robe. They chose to sell him into slavery. They chose to deceive their father. They chose this. So no one, none of the human characters in this story are puppets. They made their choices and they are responsible as those made in God's image for the choices, even sinful choices that they made. So we see man's responsibility in the text. You see it? But God's invisible providence is in every detail of this text. Because as Paul will say in Ephesians, he is the God who works out all things according to the counsel of his will. Not some things. God is the one who in his sovereignty works all things according to the counsel of his will. Joseph's dreams, for example. Joseph's dreams were not the result of eating bad pizza the night before. Joseph's dreams came because God was revealing to him what he was about to do. Or consider all the coincidences that we see in the text, right? When Joseph can't find his brothers, he just happens to meet somebody wandering around who happens to know that they're not in Shechem, but they had gone to Dothan. And it just happens that Dothan is near a very important trade route that went to Egypt. And it just happened that when they put Joseph into a pit, that there just happened to be a group of traders who happened to be going to Egypt at the exact same time when Reuben just happened to step away to prevent him from stopping this whole trade from going down. The caravan just happens to be going to Egypt. They happen to sell him to Potiphar. He happens to end up in Egypt. Everything that was necessary for Joseph to be in Egypt one day so that he could save many from the famine that was about to happen in in the land happened at just the right time, in just the right order, with just the right people. Moses is saying to us, this is not a coincidence. This is God's providence. Do you see it? The brothers, well, their plan was this punk brother, dreamer, we're going to stop his dreams. Let's, let's, let's kill him, and then we'll see what comes of this brat's dreams. And yet their effort to stop these dreams are actually what God uses to make the dreams come into fruition. It reminds me of Psalm 2. You know, people, people are, are trying to oppose God. They, they oppose God and, and, and they're standing up against God. They're making war with God. And what's God's response in Psalm 2? Is he wringing his hands? Oh, no. No, he laughs. 
He can use the sinful choices of man for his purposes. As J.I. Packer explains, the Christian is never in the grip of blind forces, fortune, chance, luck, or fate. All that happens to the Christian is divinely planned, and every event comes as a new summons to trust, obey, and rejoice. Now, as the reader, we have the privilege of being able to peek ahead. I mean, this is a tragedy for Joseph. But we can, we can kind of pick up our Bibles and say, well, I, this is really hard. Let's, let's peek ahead to the end. You ever do that when you read a novel? We, we can skip ahead to chapter 50 and see how this ends for Joseph. But Joseph can't skip ahead to chapter 50. Joseph is in the story. He's living this, which means that all that he can see is the iron collar around his neck as he makes his way to the slave block in Egypt. Not even the most skilled biblical counselor could explain what God was up to to Joseph. He would have to go through it before eventually it would make sense to him. Last night, the Washington Nationals played the New York Mets. And I want, I want, to, I want to imagine that you're a, you're a huge Nationals fan, like Pastor Mike is, and um, you wanted to watch the game last night, but something happened. You, you, you know, you couldn't watch it, and so you DVR the game so that you can watch it this afternoon after church. And so you're sitting here right now listening to this sermon, looking forward to watching the Nationals game that you, that you recorded. But before you leave the parking lot, your friend comes to you and says, man, can you believe the Nats won 11 to 6 last night? And you're like, <sighs> but being the Nats fan that you are, you go home, you sit down, and you watch the recorded game that you know how it ends. Now, knowing how it ends, would you panic when the Mets score two runs in the ninth inning? No, because you know how the game ends. Friends, we know, we know the end. God showed Joseph his plan by the tool of a dream. How can we as Christians today in the new covenant be certain? How can we know how it ends? Should Christians rely on dreams to know God's plan today? Well, listen, God can speak through dreams. He can speak through donkeys if he wants. So, sure, but at this point in salvation history, God gave us the scriptures. And as Paul says in 2 Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God. It is inspired by God. What he's saying is that this book, the scriptures, are God's word to us. God speaks to us today through his word. So everything that we think or feel needs to be tested by the the authority of God's unchanging, infallible word. So, we may not know what tomorrow holds, and sometimes God plan, God's plan does end up shattering our dream that we had. But he shatters it in order to give us something better that involves his good plan for us. It doesn't mean it's not painful, it is, but he has something better for us. In those moments when our dreams might be shattered by God's will, listen, let's be honest, we'd rather go around the valley, right? 
But as Psalm 23 reminds us, sometimes following God means going through the valley of the shadow of death. And so we trust God because he's given us his word about how this ends. We may not know all the steps between now and the end, but he tells us how it ends. So we don't need to panic. And he's given us his word to know how to live and follow him in the in-between. And we can trust God in the in-between because we know that God is sovereign. He is in control in every detail down to the number of hairs on your head along the way. God is sovereign in control even over the painful parts of our lives. He works all things together for the good of those who love him. Praise God. But there's, there's a lot of bad things that happen in this world. Abuse, cancer, car wrecks, slavery, airplanes crashing into buildings, necks being broken in the Chesapeake Bay. Is God really working all things, including the sinful choices of man and women? Is he working all things for good? Or is that just some empty cliche that Christians say to make themselves feel better in tough times? It's a legitimate question. Because you might be asking that when you're in the midst of pain. Well, friends, to answer that, I want us to, again, look at Jesus. Because during his earthly ministry, God the Father certified that Jesus was and is the Son of God by various and numerous signs and miracles. But as the Apostle Peter explained at Pentecost in Acts 2.23, it says, this, he says to those who killed Jesus, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He's up in their business. Jesus, Peter says, was killed by lawless men. These lawless men who hung Jesus on the cross were responsible. They weren't puppets. They were responsible for that choice of putting Christ on the cross. But in the same verse, Acts 2.23, Peter says that Jesus' death was also according to God's definite plan. So was it, was Jesus' death on the cross God's sovereignty or human responsibility? Yes. They're both true, even though we're not told how they fit together. But the point is, is that if God can use the worst event, the most evil and wicked event in human history, the crucifixion of the sinless Son of God who came for our well-being, if God can use the worst evil and turn it around and use it for the greatest good in human history, our salvation, then we can know with certainty this morning that no matter what we face, God working all things together for good is not an empty cliche. It is true, church. God is working all things for good. Your pain may be overwhelming, gut-wrenching, nauseating, but it is not meaningless. And there is an end to our suffering.
God has a good purpose for our suffering. And so we can trust him. It's interesting when you walk through Genesis and just look at the brothers. Cain and Abel, do they get along? Not if you count murdering each other, right? Cain and Abel, Ishmael and Isaac, Esau and Jacob, Joseph and his brothers. So far in Genesis, the pattern is that brothers don't get along. Um, The family line of God is riddled with hatred and betrayal and murder. And yet, God made it clear in Genesis 35 verse 11 that through this family, this dysfunctional family, God was building a community, a congregation of nations. God was going to transform these 12 brothers who hated each other, and he was going to transform them into a unified, worshiping community. First, as the nation of Israel, and then secondly, as the church that we're living in right now. So the idea of these 12 brothers becoming a unified, worshiping community, if you just look at 37, it it seems impossible. Because driving the brothers' animosity was a longing for their father's affection. Joseph had it, they didn't, and they were jealous for it. And that jealousy was the fruit of their hatred. So how is, this, how is God going to make this motley crew of a dysfunctional family into a unified, worshiping community? Well, as was true of then, as is true today, our sin separates us from God. And it's our sin that leaves us at odds, not only with God, but with each other. And whether we realize it or not, our actions throughout the day are being driven by our longing for God. Even the atheist who denies it, our actions are being driven by a longing for the affection of the God who created us. That's what we're made for. But all of our actions fall short of reconciling us to him because our sin remains. And as long as our sin remains on our account, so does our separation from a holy God and so does our separation from each other. And friends, that's why, that's why Jesus came. On the cross, he died not for his own sin, he was sinless. He died on the cross for the sins of those who would trust in him. And on the cross, in taking our sin, Jesus is able to reconcile us to God and then secondarily to destroy the hostility that once separated us from each other. Individuals from each other, families from each other, tribes from each other, nations from each other. He's able to bring us together in the good news of Jesus Christ. The reason that the church, that churches sometimes lack unity today is not because of Jesus failed to do what he was supposed to. The reason that churches lack unity today is because they build their unity on some pressing social or political issue rather than building their unity on being united to Jesus Christ. Friends, in the church, in the church, if you're in the church, God has no partiality. And so there is no reason for envy because every forgiven sinner receives the affection of God the Father equally. At the foot of the cross, there is no boasting. There's just embracing, and he's made us one. That's what we sang about in genuine love earlier this morning. 
Well, after Johnny Erickson Tata broke her neck in the Chesapeake Bay, she told her friend, Steve Estes, you know, she was, rest, she was wrestling with, with what just happened, and she told Steve, I, you know, I wonder where God was in this, and why didn't he stop this from happening, and did God even care? So Steve was opening his Bible and trying to encourage his friend, Johnny, with God's word. Decades later, Steve Estes told Johnny that that moment when she was wrestling with God, with him present, it was a sobering moment for him. Because both of them were Christians and Steve had several Bible verses in his mind that he'd learned at church that he could comfort her and encourage her with. But he said, I'd never really test-driven those truths with this type of a situation when my friend was paralyzed in a wheelchair in front of me. I mean, the worst thing that happened to Steve thus far was that he got a D in algebra. And so he's sitting there wondering, is this gonna work? But he said to himself, if the Bible can't work in my paralyzed friend's life, then the Bible was never for real in the first place. And so he cleared his throat, he took the leap, and he shared God's word with Johnny Erickson Tata. And God used his word not only to change he didn't, he didn't use it to change her paralysis. She's still paralyzed from the neck down today. But he used his word through his friend to help Johnny to trust God and to use her to give the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ to thousands and to help them be aware of, of caring for those who are struggling with disabilities. I kind of feel like Steve Estes with my non-Christian friends this morning because I don't know all of the trials and suffering and pain that you're facing this morning. I don't. But either God's word is true or it's not. So like Steve Estes, I'm taking a leap of faith and I'm saying to you that God is telling us the truth, that his word is true, that he is trustworthy. He is sovereign over all things and he's using even the hard things in your life for good if you're willing to trust him. And the reason we can know this is because Jesus not only died for our sins, but he rose again. And he lives to make that known to us today. So, again, if you're not a Christian here this morning, I pray that as hard as this might be to do, that you turn from your sin, that you run to Christ this morning in faith. And when you do, when you come to him in repentance and in faith, he will receive you with open arms. You may not be able to see how this all fits together now, but one day you will. Now we trust him by faith. Do that, I pray. He's trustworthy. Let's pray together.